0: The talk tonight is a bit of a a landmark in the Bible survey because the area that we cover tonight will bring us to the end of the first section of the Old Testament. And we're going to finish off tonight the historical section and then we'll move on to the wisdom books and then after that the prophets. uh, But where we've come so far with uh, our notorious talk last week, didn't we? We saw the overview of, uh, you know, sort of all the kings of uh, Judah and Israel. But you'll remember that the talk before that, when we actually did 1 and 2 Chronicles, that uh, where where we came to was uh, that Israel, the northern kingdom, was dead and gone, carried off into captivity by the Assyrians. Um, gone and and lost, you know, the the ten lost tribes, although they will be restored in the end times, but to all intents and purposes, they're gone off the scene completely. And we saw that Judah, the southern kingdom, the one that was in the messianic line, King David and his descendants on the throne, we saw that they lasted in the land a further hundred years, and then they were carried off into captivity as well by the Babylonians. And um, so that's where we've left them. You know, the land is, is, is non-Jewish now. But of course, that's not the end of the story. Because what we're dealing with tonight is the history surrounding the fact that once uh, Judah was carried off into captivity by the Babylonians, uh, that that captivity lasted for 70 years. And then Judah, or the south, the southern kingdom, now returns back into the land, so that the nation of Israel, as it were, goes back into the land. And uh, that's the history that we're going to be dealing with tonight. So we've come, Israel coming out of slavery in Egypt, through the wilderness, into the land. The divided kingdom, the north, goes off into captivity, never heard of again. The south goes off. No Jews in the land, but tonight we're going to see how Judah, the southern kingdom, is returned into the land by the Lord. And uh, we saw it very briefly in the last chapter of 2 Chronicles, which just um, ended with the fact that um, while Israel was in captivity, uh, the Babylonian Empire fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. And, uh, and basically what happened is that as a result of that changeover in world power um, after 70 years um, is Israel or Judah the south was allowed to actually go back into the land and, um, and so the books that we're going to deal with tonight we're going to do three which is quite viable because they're relatively short books so it's, uh, it's not going to be too much to do three and the three books are Ezra Nehemiah and Esther. And that's the order they occur in, that's the order we're going to do them in. And these three books together form the little trilogy of the last little bit of the historical section of the Old Testament, how the Jews got back into the land, having been in the Babylonian captivity. And uh, so we're going to see these three books cover a hundred year period of history uh, from about 536 to 432 BC Uh, hold those dates if you like, forget them if you like, do what you like with them so then what we've got is that Judah has been in captivity for 70 years in the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire has fallen to Medo-Persia and the Medes and the Persians were led by King Cyrus now He led an altogether more humane uh, kind of empire than the Babylonians and the policy that he pursued um, is that he repopulated all the nations that had been brought into captivity under the Babylonians, he repatriated and also he encouraged them and allowed them, as they went back into the land, to also retain their former faith or religion, whatever it was. But there are definite indications in the Bible that Cyrus was actually a believer, that he believed in the Lord. Whether or not he did so when he came to power, or whether or not it was because he met believers in Babylon after he came to power and became a believer, we don't know. But there are definite indications that he was a believer, that he believed in the Lord. And uh, and obviously as a result of the policy that he had, that he would allow peoples to go back into their native lands, obviously that applied to Israel as well. So as a result of Cyrus being in power, 70 years after going into captivity, um, Judah, the time comes for them to go back into the land. And so the first book we deal with is the book of Ezra. We're going to, you know, do them in the order that they appear in the Bible, although they're not actually in chronological order. Because as you'll see, Ezra and Nehemiah follow on from each other. That's chronological. But the book of Esther fits in in the middle. You'll see what I mean when we get there. Okay. But first of all, we come to the book of Ezra. And uh, so we'll whip through it chapter by chapter, you'll find actually that Ezra doesn't appear in the book till later on. So the first few chapters, he, he doesn't make any appearance at all. But nevertheless, in Ezra and chapter 1, uh, we it basically starts off with the same, you know, ex, you know, sort of like a verbatim ending of 2 Chronicles. You know, the last few verses of 2 Chronicles are also the first few verses um, of chapter 1 of Ezra. But uh, there you have the actual decree... Um, that Cyrus sent out, that the Jews should commence the resettlement of Israel or resettlement back into Jerusalem. And uh, so now an official Cyrus, he's the leader of the then world power, a decree goes out and the Jews are actually authorised to go back to Jerusalem uh, with instructions to, to rebuild both the city and the temple as well. Because remember, the city and the temple were destroyed and burned and flattened when Nebuchadnezzar had carted them off into captivity 70 years earlier. So uh, now they're going to go back in the, into the land and to rebuild the city and the temple as well. And also, what he did is that Cyrus, all the, all the stuff that um, had been nicked, by the Babylonians from the temple, you'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar invaded twice, all right? The captivity was two stages. The first one, he wrecked and plundered the temple, and then it was a few years later that he actually destroyed the whole place and took all the Jews into captivity. Well, what Cyrus did, he returned all the plunder that the Babylonians had taken from the temple. So, you know, sort of like everything that Nebuchadnezzar had nicked from the temple is now returned to the Jews by Ezra. And he says, right, go back into your land, rebuild your city, rebuild the temple, and here's all the gear that goes in the temple. So, a good start. So, uh, you know, sort of like here we see the Lord working, that the judgment was only temporary, as the Lord had told them. In chapter 2, you have a a chapter of lists, and um, the lists are just the names of of all the Jews and their families who returned at that particular time um, into the land of Israel, and also it logs up the amount of money they gave towards the rebuilding of the temple. So Cyrus has given them a kickstart, but as they go back in, they go back to the land, knowing, look, we've got to put our hands in our own pockets here. We've got to give 100% of everything that we've got. Now, in in chapter three, um, we have the, the 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 altar is rebuilt first. They didn't obviously just suddenly bang rebuild the temple because that was a massive kind of undertaking. But they they rebuilt the altar in the temple first, and once they'd done that, they kept the feast of the tabernacles. And you remember that that was the you know the feast that um, signified the fact that God was living amongst His people because of course. In the beginning of rebuilding the temple, it was always the, the picture that God was with his people, Israel. And uh, so having done the altar, then they move on uh, after this Feast of the Tabernacles, and they, they actually commence the rebuilding of the temple, and they lay its foundations. Now, <clears throat> all this work in Jerusalem is being led by a guy called Zerubbabel. Now, when we get into the third section of the Old Testament, i.e. after we've done this, then we'll do the wisdom books, then we move on and we do the prophets. And as I said last time, the prophets are kind of, you know, sort of all throughout the history. And the guys that we're going to see now, we'll be back to them later on when we come to do the books of the prophets. But the, um, the work is being led by a bloke called Zerubbabel, and uh, Zerubbabel was the grandson of Jehoiakim. Now, Jehoiakim was Judah's last but one king when they were taken into captivity. So he is the grandson of Jehoiakim. Um, he's in the line of David, all right, but he's not king. Cyrus didn't uh, permit them to actually have a king. But what he did do is he appointed Zerubbabel the, um, the governor of the work. So, in a kind of a way, the messianic line is established, even though Zerubbabel, although a descendant of David isn't actually the king, um, but he is, um, you know, sort of like acting as the governor. And, um, you know, so he, he is leading this, this work of the rebuilding of the temple and the city, and um, he is assisted by um, a priest who, was, who became his high priest called Yeshua, which of course is the Hebrew for Jesus, or also called Joshua. And uh, this is the Joshua, the high priest, who in a, a future study we're going to see appears uh, when we come on to do the prophet Zechariah, it's that Joshua, the high priest. So all this building work is being led by um, Zerubbabel, in the messianic line acting as the governor and uh yeshua or joshua who is the high priest now in chapter four uh we we, we have obviously had to happen opposition uh, to the rebuilding of the temple um we're not going to go into the you know the details here but what happens is that some um, some of these surrounding gentiles uh make kind of positive and endearing noises um, you know, kind of saying, look, you know, would you like us to come into partnership with you in, in the rebuilding of Jerusalem and um, and your temple? And, uh, and of course, this was a trick. This was a trick because, you know, these were Gentiles in surrounding nations and Gentiles in the land itself uh, who, who, who didn't want Israel back in the land at all. And uh, they wanted to stop the work. And so um, un- under the guise of wanting to help, they wanted to worm their way in and uh, cause trouble. But uh, uh, fortunately, uh, Zerubbabel and, and Joshua see right through it, so, so they don't accept that offer of help, inverted commas. Then at the end of chapter four, we just have a little bit which is completely out of uh, you know, chronology, and, um, and it gives us a bit of history that came quite a bit later. And uh, it it just tells us the fact that uh, one of the later kings um, in Persia who took over, you know, sort of like one of the kings who came after Cyrus was a bloke called Artaxerxes, all right? And um, and it just tells us here that uh, during the reign of Artaxerxes, he brought uh, a, a, you know he brought the work in Jerusalem to a halt uh, for a while, having received letters from various Gentile troublemakers uh, to the effect that the Jews uh, were getting ready to revolt against him. And uh, so this guy Artaxerxes, and we'll be back to him later. Uh, therefore, brought the you know brought the work to a halt for a while. Now, why at the end of. Chapter 4, it suddenly jumps ahead to give... I, I don't know, but uh, there it is. Anyway, when we come on now to Chapters 5 and 6, we come back into, um, you know, sort of like chronological order. And uh, now in Chapter 5, we jump forward a few years, not very far, but uh, Cyrus is has, has now died and he's off the throne. and. Um, the, the king in uh, Persia, who's obviously over Israel, because uh, you know Medo Persia was ruling the you know the then known world, um, and the, the guy who's reigning now is a bloke called Darius. And um, so we've jumped forward a bit, and uh, and what's happening now is that Zerubbabel and Joshua have been joined by two prophets, one called Haggai and one called Zechariah. And when we come on to do the prophet books, we'll you know sort of see that it, they, they've each got a book of their own. And uh, so, so at this point, a few years has passed, and the work kind of stopped. It all ground to a halt, all right? And so now God raises up Zerubbabel and Joshua again to get it going again. Hey, look, come on with slips. Everything's come to a halt. And God raises up Haggai and Zechariah as prophets to, to help them um, in this. And, uh, and once, once they get going again, opposition appears. And you'll find that the, that the whole of Israel's history at this point, while they were rebuilding, the city and the temple, that the Gentiles who lived in the land and surround the land did everything they could to, you know, to stop it, and uh, you know, so there was always this battle, and so opposition um, appears, and uh, one of the, the local Gentiles, who was a governor of a province in the land, what, what he does is he writes to Darius. And, uh, you know, a kind of letter look, you know, don't you realize that you know, the, the Jews, they're rebuilding, you know, their land and Jerusalem and the temple and they're troublemakers and, and there's going to be trouble if you let them go on with this. So the Gentiles are trying to get Darius, Cyrus has gone, they're trying to get Darius to step in and put a stop to it, all right. But uh, what happens is that Darius writes back to this guy, you know, the governor, you know, the Gentiles, he writes back to them and uh, not only does he give his full support to what the jews are doing but he tells this governor that he and all his people are to help pay for the rebuilding and so on that particular instance you know the 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 people who opposed the building really came unstuck there because they thought that Darius, as the overall king, would put a stop to it but when they tried to get him to do so, Darius wrote back and said, no, I'm not going to stop them, in fact, you have got to help them. And, uh, you know, so, so there the Lord sort of saved the day there. And so the work then goes on until the temple is completed. And once the temple has been completed, it took some time Um, but uh, they they celebrated for the first time for many years the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so the situation now is that through the ministry we've had Zerubbabel, we've had Joshua, his high priest, and we've had Haggai and Zechariah. And under the ministry of these four guys, although it's been up and down, it it didn't flow all the time, but nevertheless, even though it was a bit stop-start, Nevertheless, the temple has been rebuilt, all right? So, everything is well on the way to Jerusalem really being established. The temple is now operative. So that brings us to the end of chapter 6. Now, in between chapter 6 and chapter 7, we now jump ahead about 60 years. So we've got a 60-year gap, all right? Now, remember that because we're going to be back to that when we come to do Esther. But here is a 60 year gap. And we now jump ahead 60 years and in chapters 7 to 8 we have entering the scene good old Ezra. So the point is chapters 1 to 6 of Ezra has given us the historical background and now 60 years later after the temple is completed now Ezra actually comes on the scene. And uh, he, he was a priest, and uh, he came back to Jerusalem, and he brought with him the second wave of returning exiles. You'll remember that when the captivity happened, Israel was carted off in two waves. The captivity was a two-stage thing. And here, so was the return into the land. So you'd had one wave of Jews who'd come back you know, sort of, at this point, 60-odd years earlier, and now the second wave come back. And uh, they come back under the leadership of Ezra, who was the priest. And uh, he he brings with him a letter from the bloke who was the king then, and it's Artaxerxes. You remember we saw him in chapter 4, when it got a bit out of chronological order, all right? Artaxerxes is now the king over the Medo-Persian Empire, all right. So Ezra now comes back, all right, into the land, and he has got a letter from Artaxerxes authorizing him to establish Jewish self-rule. So now... The temple is rebuilt, they've had permission to rebuild the city, but now they've got permission from Artaxerxes, who, although we saw in chapter 4, sometimes was against the Jews, sometimes he was for them, he was a bit of a waverer, all right, Artaxerxes. Sometimes he was pro-Israel, sometimes he was anti. I think it probably depended which advisor he was actually hearing at the time. But uh, now... He sends Ezra back into the land, and Ezra has the authorization to establish political and economic autonomy, alright? And, of course, this is the final thing that undoes the captivity completely and uh, that you get a list of all the families who returned with him, because obviously the Bible does like its lists. Obviously they're all genealogies and stuff like that. So now Ezra comes to Jerusalem, and he settles in, and he now becomes the leader of the nation in the next phase of all the rebuilding and establishing autonomy. And in chapters 9 and 10, the first thing he has to do is to tackle the problem of the fact that the Jews were intermarrying with the surrounding Gentiles. Now that was the main thing that Ezra had to deal with. Because the point was Israel has gone back into the land, they're rebuilding Jerusalem, the temple is re-established. But obviously if the Jews keep intermarrying the Gentiles they're going to lose their identity again. And remember they, they lost the land. The captivity happened because they kept going into the idolatry of all the surrounding Gentile nations, the Canaanites. And so, therefore, Ezra goes back and realizing, oh my goodness, they're doing it again. They're intermarrying amongst the Gentiles. He kind of has to sort that problem out first. And uh, what he does is that he, he, he prays a prayer of repentance on behalf of the nation and uh, just ask the Lord to sort it out. So what he's doing is he's gathering uh, all the Jews together and, and, and he's saying, look, we've got to repent of this as a nation and we've got to put it right. And what happens is, as a result of that, 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 that there's a national repentance. And that what the Jews now do is that they separate themselves from their foreign wives. Obviously. There was no problem with a Jew marrying a Gentile if that Gentile became a proselyte and embraced the faith of Jehovah, the Lord God. But uh, if they didn't, they weren't to marry. So now what the Jews do is they, 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 they send away their Gentile wives who weren't actually following the Lord. And, uh, and then the actual book ends with a list naming all the guilty parties, like the Jews who had been mainly responsible for all this intermarrying. Now, that, that, that brings us to the end of the book of Ezra, fairly straightforward. So, uh, you know, what we've got, we've had Israel in captivity or Judah in captivity for 70 years. The first wave of people have gone back. The temple has been rebuilt. The city is being rebuilt. Uh, You know, sort of like Zerubbabel, Joshua, Haggai, Zechariah led that whole aspect of the work. Then we've jumped ahead 60 years and Ezra comes and as a priest begins to establish the autonomy that they're now to have in the land and to be an independent nation again. And we've seen that the first problem that he's had to overcome, was he's had to to, to stop the Jews from intermarrying with all the Gentiles, because that would eventually lead them down exactly the same road that got them into captivity in the first place. Right, so there's the book of Ezra. Now then, 15 years later and we have the book of Nehemiah. So let's jump straight into Nehemiah and we'll we'll do chapters 1 to 2 first. now, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. Now, this is the same Artaxerxes, the same king of Medo Persia who had sent Ezra. All right? So, Ezra and Nehemiah, I mean, they had worked together in the service of the king. So, whereas ne- you know, Ezra had already gone into the land uh, during you know, the ensuing 15 years, Nehemiah has still been working for Artaxerxes. So, Nehemiah and Ezra knew each other, were old friends. And. Um, so, so, so what's happening now um, is that, that, that Nehemiah hears that, um, that things aren't going quite as well in Jerusalem as they should be. Uh, Ezra had been there for well over 15 years, and uh, Nehemiah gets word that the walls of the city still weren't built, um, and of course in order to be independent you had to be a, for, you know, a fortified city, because unless you had walls around your city, you were not independent, because anyone could just march in and do what they liked to you. So it was vital that in order for Jerusalem's autonomy to be established, that the walls had to be built. And, uh, you know, so, so Nehemiah, you know, hears that uh, things aren't going too well. Again, the work has lapsed. You see, it, it, it was going well and then it lapsed, I mean that, you know, we saw that at the beginning of Ezra, even at the time, you know, when um, Zerubbabel and um, and Joshua were in charge, so there was a time when it just lapsed and a few years later they had to start it all up again and uh, so, so what happens is that um, Nehemiah, he prays and fasts because he wants to get there, he wants to go home he wants to play a part in, in seeing the city established in the way that it should be. And uh, having prayed and fast, he, he then goes to Artaxerxes and um, asks if, if he could be sent to Jerusalem with the express purpose of uh, building the walls, or at least overseeing the work, not doing it all himself, obviously. And, uh, and that was a risky thing to do. But he'd prayed, he'd fasted, the Lord led him in regards to it. And uh, you've actually got that f- famous verse, when, it, you know, when he goes to Artaxerxes to ask him, the thing about, well, he sent up a narrow prayer is where, where that idea of arrow prayers comes from. You know, the Bible says that he sent up a prayer to the Lord like an arrow. And um, and so he tells Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes he said, look, what, what's up with you? So Nehemiah took a deep breath and he sent up the arrow prayer. And he said, well, actually, I was wondering if, uh, you know, a woman. And so Artaxerxes hears what he's got to say. And he says, right, no problem. Go to Jerusalem, you be in charge of rebuilding the walls, and, uh, and Artaxerxes actually sends him with letters, um, authorizing him to, you know, sort of commandeer, you know, any stuff that he needed locally, you know, to take with him, you know, and to have, you know, sort of like probably, you know, authority to draw on money to a certain amount or whatever. So Artaxerxes gives Nehemiah um, his full backing. And um, as, as soon as Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, um, as soon as he arrives, what he does is, is that he inspects the ruins and uh, he goes around, you know, he looks at the ruins, because most of the city is still in ruins, particularly the walls, and, uh, and he just walks around the ruins, and it just breaks his heart. Because because it's all symbolic of what the glory of the nation was at the zenith of its power under King David and Solomon. And, you know, even though they're they're now back into the land, nevertheless it was a very pitiful display. There was a long way to go before Israel was back to its former glory as a nation. And so it sort of breaks his heart going around the ruins, and and so he he really then gets stuck in and gets the work going. and, of course, traditionally, people have found in this book a, a, a tremendous kind of, like, picture of what God wants to do in the church, you know, rebuilding the church. You know, sometimes, you, you know, one can look on, it's like the church is in ruins, just like the city was. The walls are all broken down, you know, and the, a prophet is someone who, you know, sort of like they see the ruins and, and they say, I can't abide the church being like this. We must, We must become as we were meant to be, as once we were. And there's a tremendous picture there in this book of Nehemiah. And uh, so, on he goes. He gets all the people together and he organises and the work starts on the walls. And uh, immediately, opposition rears its head. And uh, there are some particular Gentiles, locally, who had a lot of influence. Um, A bloke called Sam Ballot the Horonite. Uh, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem, who was an Arab. And these were three local bigwigs. They had a lot of power, and, uh, and they kind of, um, you know, decide that we're really going to oppose this all we can. And as far as Chapter 2 goes, they start just with mockery. And, uh, you know, they're just mocking, you know, you know, what do you Jews think you're doing, you know, I mean, how do you, you know, do you really think you can rebuild the walls, do, do you really think that this city can be as it once was, Yeah, and it's just mockery, that's how it starts. And, of course, Nehemiah just doesn't take any notice of it, just ignores it, he knows what the Lord has called him to do. Then, in uh, chapter 3, you, you get details of who built which bit of the wall, and uh, who built which bit of the gates. So it's kind of like a plan of action here. So we, we, you know, we, we don't need to, but you know, you've got the wall and you've got various gates in it, and it tells you who was responsible for what bit of the wall or what gate. Um, in chapter four, uh, we have more on the opposition that, that, that comes through from the people that we've already noted. And of course, they've got loads of other people involved as well, you know, like whips up the crowds like. And, um, and they start again with mockery Always starts with mockery, you know, Satan whispering, oh, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. You know, it's that, that's how Satan starts. And um, But the more they got mocked, the more Nehemiah prayed. And the more Nehemiah prayed, the better the war was getting done, you see. So, I mean, it was counterproductive. So, what what these guys then do is they go from mockery to threats of physical attack. And they say, what's going to happen is, I mean, they weren't actually saying, we will come and attack you. But what they're kind of saying is, oh, you know, sort of dangerous work, this, <laughs> might be attacked at any time, you see. So the threat of physical attack, saying, if you carry on, you're going to be physically in danger. And uh, so, in answer to that, Nehemiah uh, posts guards, and, uh, you know, to make sure that the work isn't stopped. So he says, right, okay, what you're saying, you might attack us, right, okay, we'll have to have guards. So, what happens now is he takes some of the people off their duties of actually building the walls, the walls, and, and he has guards posted and lookouts. And that what happened was that the rest of the people, what they did, is that they, they, they worked with one hand whatever they were doing, you know, like bricklaying or what, doing the mortar, however they built the walls. I'm no expert. But they, they did their work with one hand and they had a sword in the other. So they were ready for attack at any time. And, of course, that's a tremendous picture when, you know, Peter, you know, in his letter says, be alert for, you know, Satan goes about like a roaring lion, looking, you know, looking for whom he might devour. And, of course, that's a picture of vigilance and alertness in our Christian lives, that we're doing our work in one hand and we've got a sword in the other, that whatever we're doing, spiritual warfare is shot through all the time, standing, ready for the attacks of Satan, however it comes, however it comes. Now, in chapter 5, the tactics change, because, of course, at the end of the day, Satan was, uh, you know, trying to stop the Jews being established in the land. And uh, there's a a change of tact now, and there's an attack from within. And uh, what happens is that that within the city amongst the Jews, uh, the people who were rebuilding most of the Jews were working on the walls. And that meant that they'd had to temporarily lay aside however it was they normally earned their money, whether they are butchers or bakers or whatever. And so the point was that, that their earning potential had really gone down. Now, what was happening is that the rich Jews in Jerusalem were exploiting the average Jew who was working on the wall. Because what they were doing is they were lending money at interest. They were forcing them to borrow heavily. So now, not only were they rebuilding the wall at their own expense, they didn't mind that, that was the law's work, but now their brothers are exploiting them. And of course, this created all kinds of murmurs and tension in the city. And of course, this was far more dangerous than anything that, you know, that the opposition could do. Because when you're being attacked from the outside, that has the effect of you gather together, you stand even firmer. But Satan always eventually goes and tries to rip God's people out from the inside out. And that's what he does here. So what happens is that Nehemiah, really seeing the danger, he gets in there and he rebukes the rich people who are doing the exploiting. He gets in there and says, how dare you use this situation to exploit your brothers? and so he gets it all sorted out and the rich Jews repent and so there's harmony again all right so 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 that that worked out well and of course you really see that parallel in the acts of the apostles like for instance you can see that from the outpouring of the holy spirit on the day of Pentecost, that immediately there was opposition from the Jews and beaten and thrown into jail, dispersed, had to flee from your homes, blah, 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 blah. And the more that attacks like that happened, the more the church grew. But then you'll remember what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. That hypocrisy, the attack from within, that was what was dangerous. Because if if that sort of immorality and deceit had caught on in the church, it would have been destroyed. From the inside. And so that's why God actually struck them dead, you know, the sin unto death, to make an example of them, because it was an attack by Satan from the inside of the church. The more he attacked the church from the outside, the stronger it got. But if he can attack from the inside, that is where the real danger is. And And then you'll remember as well that there was all the murmuring and resentment where the Greek speaking Jews felt that their widows were being neglected. Um, in the, you know, sort of, like, handing out of all the money and that. And so the apostles step in, and they answered that one by saying, look, you know, we honestly haven't got the time to sort this out to make sure it doesn't happen again. So that was when deacons were appointed. And if you go through all of the deacons, all of them had Greek names. And although the Greek-speaking Jews in the church were the minority who were being unfairly treated, the apostles answered that by saying, right, all the people who are going to sort this out for you are going to be from the minority who have been unfairly treated. And that answered the situation perfectly. And so peace and harmony was restored. And so it was here as well. And then um, at the end of chapter 5, Nehemiah is then officially made the governor by Artaxerxes. Right, okay, then we move into chapter 6 and opposition takes yet another another twist another turn and um, and what happens this time is that they they try to trick Nehemiah into thinking that they want to help him this was the very first tack that um, you know that the Gentiles used on Cyrus you're uh, on um, Ezra you're a member and uh, so what they do is that they they try to worm their way in to Nehemiah and to say well really we're We're trying to help you. And the way they did it, and this, you know, it's really sneaky, as Satan is, that they said, look, Nehemiah, it looks like you're planning to become king. It looks like you're planning to lead a rebellion against the Medo-Persian Empire. But even though it looks like that, Nehemiah, how about if we write a letter to Artaxerxes and we will be on your side and we will tell him that it's not really true and that any misunderstandings there are will put it to rights. Now, can you see how sneaky that is? On, on three counts. Firstly, there weren't any misunderstandings in Artaxerxes' mind whatsoever. And Satan loves doing that, you know, sort of like conjuring up illusory problems, problems that don't exist. They're saying, look, it, you know, sort of Artaxerxes is probably getting the wrong end of the stick here, Nehemiah. Artaxerxes wasn't at all. And then, secondly, they're ingratiating themselves to Nehemiah. The idea, that you know, that Nehemiah's supposed to say, "Oh, gee, thanks, lads, you're, you're all right after all. I'm with you. You want to help, see?" And if they could have got Nehemiah in their power like that, they'd have twisted him round his little finger. And then, thirdly, the effect of this was that it's putting fear in the minds of the people. Because, I mean, the people, are there thinking, is Artaxerxes misunderstanding? Is he going to send the army in? Does he think we're going to lead a revolt against him? Or perhaps they're thinking, hey, you know, these snidey old people, they're after Nehemiah, trying to butter him up. Do you think he's going to be taken in? you see the effect that that would have on the people? they create insecurity, you see. And that's often the way that Satan works. And um, But Nehemiah handles it quite admirably, ignores it. He just totally ignores it. He doesn't even bother to reply. Just gets on with his work. And uh, so then, opposition changes another tack. Let's try something else. And uh, so so what happens now is Sam Ballot, who was one of this trio who are leading the, you know, sort of all the people against the Jews, what they do is um, they hire a bloke called Shemaya. And uh, what they, they get Shemaiah to do is that he, he goes to Nehemiah and he pretends to, um, to be like a fan of Nehemiah, who has uh, stumbled upon an assassination plot. So what this Shemaiah does is he goes to Nehemiah, so, you know, pretending to be an ally, and saying, I've, I've, I've stumbled upon a plot to assassinate you. you see? I mean, there wasn't a plot to assassinate him, the whole thing was a deception. But the idea was, is that if that had put the wind up Nehemiah enough, their hope was that Nehemiah would, would, would kind of leg it. <laughs> think, right, I'm out of here. And if they could make him out to look a coward, then all the people would lose respect for him, and that would put pay to the work. Brilliant idea. um. But again, it didn't work. Because Nehemiah just ignored it. His kind of attitude was, oh, well, okay, let them assassinate me then. <laughs> because he trusted the Lord. And so that didn't work. And, you know, and of course, you know, Sam Ballat and all the others, I mean, they're tearing their hair out. And isn't this true? Satan is tearing his hair out. Because whatever he does against the work of God, the Lord uses to strengthen the work that Satan is trying to stop so at the end of the day everything satan does against the lord's work actually strengthens the lord's work everything that these guys did against nehemiah ended up strengthening his position in the eyes of the people so um you know they're tearing their hair out it doesn't matter what they do nothing works, the work is proceeding. And, uh, and then at the end of chapter six, eventually the wall is completed. And uh, then in uh, cha- chapter seven, uh, you, you get the lists of, of, of all the people who are appointed for duty. You've got the gatekeepers, uh, you've got the singers, you've got the Levites. So now, because the wall is, is finished, the city now begins to move into autonomy, mode, independence mode. And so now everything is being put into place uh, for the economic and the religious life of Jerusalem to start up again. And so the gatekeepers are appointed and the singers and the Levites, blah, blah, blah. And uh, and then you get another list because the Old Testament loves its lists um, of of all the exiles who had returned thus far. So a, a great long chapter of genealogy. Then we come on to chapter eight, And uh, now Ezra is back on the scene. Well, he's been on the scene all the time. Because remember, Ezra and Nehemiah had kind of worked together. They both worked for King Artaxerxes. Uh, Ezra had been in the land for 15 years already, and then Nehemiah joined him. So all this time, Ezra's been there. And uh, so, so now... What happens is, with the walls finished and everyone being appointed for duty, um, Ezra, who's kind of like the priest and he's like the, you know, you know the nation's Bible teacher-like, um, he gets all the people together and uh, he, he reads the whole book of the law to them. So, everything they had of the Old Testament, Ezra reads it out to them in public. And uh, for the next seven days, they keep the Feast of Tabernacles again. And all the time through it, Ezra is doing Bible teaching. So in effect, this is followed now by a week of festivities and Bible teaching. So it's, you know, sort of like, you know, almost like a conference, you know, like a teaching conference, but with plenty of grub, which is the way I like conferences to be. And uh, then we move on to chapter... 9 and 10 and then after this 7 days of feasting and Bible teaching um, there's kind of a national prayer and repentance thing happens that, that what, what happens is that Ezra kind of he, he leads the people through their history from Abraham onwards all the time reminding them of how their forefathers had always ended up in rebellion, and that there was a constant tendency in the nation to rebel against the Lord and to be unfaithful to him. And so, after the seven days of the festivities and the Bible teaching, now a national repentance is required, and saying, look, we've got to make sure that it doesn't happen again. We've got to make sure that our hearts are right before the Lord. And what happens is that uh, Ezra, um, he, he, he prepares a national covenant of obedience. So they come up actually with their own covenant. And all the leaders and all the priests sign it on behalf of the people. So this was how much they were meaning business. They drew an agreement up, almost, saying, Lord, we're going to follow you in the way that we know that we should. And and all the leaders and the priests sign it on behalf of the people. Then in chapter 11, you get more lists. And uh, these lists are uh, who ended up living where because uh, obviously you've got Jerusalem and you've got the surrounding territory, you know, the surrounding nation, the surrounding towns, and so who, who, who's going to get where? And so what they do is they do it by casting lots, which was how, when Israel first went in the land all those years before, um, under the ministry of Joshua, you'll remember that once they kicked all the Canaanites out, or, or, or kicked most of the Canaanites out, they never got rid of the whole lot, did they? Uh, but the land was allotted by lot, as it were, and uh, so so here, what they do is they cast lots, and you know, sort of like oh, your family, you know, like roll the dice. I'm not saying they had dice, but you know, like whatever they did, you know, like pick a straw or however it was they did it. You know, your family, oh, you get there, or oh, uh, that that's your bush, or whatever, you know, that that sort of thing. And so everyone is given a little bit of the land uh, where they're going to um, live. And, uh, you know, so you get all the lists of, of, of that. And uh, then in chapter 12, you get another list. And uh, this this list is, 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 is of all the the priests and the Levites. You know, so a list of who they were. So, so they're all named. And, um, and then this was followed now by a massive dedication service so everything they've you know like the tabernacles and the national repentance and the casting lots for who lives once all that is done once everything is organized then there's this massive dedication service of the wall as the final symbol that jerusalem is up and running again we're back in the land restoration has happened and uh, then in chapter 13 which covers a a, a few years. Nehemiah, his work basically done, goes back um, to Artaxerxes. So, you know, back to, you know, the Persian capital and that, and, uh, you know, to serve Artaxerxes there again. And uh, and he stays there a while, and and then after he's been there for a while, he he then goes back to Jerusalem, just to see how things are, are going. So, he's been away, all right, and then he comes back. All right? And, uh, and when he comes back, he, he, he finds several things that have gone wrong. And, and immediately he's got to correct these things that were going wrong. Because remember, even though the work was finished, Satan is always burrowing away. All right? And, um, and there were five things that Nehemiah, on his return, had to sort out. And uh, firstly, um, there was a priest called Elisha. And uh, one of the three main opponents of Nehemiah, from the word go, you'll remember, was Tobiah, the Ammonite. He was one of the the dirty three, as it were. And um, Eliashib had uh, given Tobiah lodgings in one of the rooms in the wall. Uh, In the ancient cities, the actual walls were really thick and they had houses in the walls. So you could live in the city inside the walls, or you could have your house in the walls themselves or outside the walls. And, uh, and, and he comes back and Debiah, the Ammonite, has been given lodgings in the walls. And uh, so Nehemiah throws him out, goes and finds him, picks him up and throws him out. He's a very physical blow. Um, number two, um, he discovered that, um, that quite a few of the Levites and, and the singers... And these were people who should have been employed full-time in service in the temple, because remember, the Levites were the assistants to the actual priests. And and he found that a lot of them, the Levites and the singers, like the assistants to the priests, have been forced back into secular work, um, because provision hadn't been made for them. I.e., what this meant is that the giving was bad. And so a lot of the people who should have been in full-time service in the temple had had to go and get jobs because the people weren't giving enough. And, um, you know, so Nehemiah sorts out the officials who are bringing, you know, and gets them onto that, you know, look, you've got to make sure that the people know what their duty is in regards to giving. So. That one got sorted out as well, so these guys could give up their secular jobs and get on with ministering to the Lord in the temple as they should have been, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Third, there was Sabbath trading going on, which was, of course, against the law in the Ten Commandments, so he put a stop to that. Uh, The fourth thing was that intermarriage had been happening again. No sooner had Nehemiah gone back to Artaxerxes, and boom, intermarriage. The Jews were marrying Gentiles who hadn't come to actually follow the Lord. And uh, so what he does is that he, he, he goes and he finds these, these guys and um, and it, and he, he, he throws them out of the city as well. And it actually says, and I am quoting, he beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. That's why I say Nehemiah was quite a physical bloke. When we saw that he threw Eliashib out, he threw Eliashib out. It wasn't he threw him out, and here these guys who had intermarried. These guys knew that. I mean, it was it was it was out of the question what they were doing. It was outrageous that they should have married Gentiles. And he beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. So he really meant business. And of course, this is this. I mean, he's he's got them all on the ground here, isn't he? And uh, you know, he's sticking the boot in. And of course, this is where his name comes from because all the Jews were standing around cheering him on, saying, "Go on, Nehemiah." Nehemiah, see right, and then then, then lastly, lastly, um, one of the high priest's grandsons had married Sambalat's daughter, and uh, you know so so Nehemiah goes and finds him and uh, throws him out as well, and uh, the book ends there, and um, and 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 there's just a, a kind of a, a few details of um, sort of like how the priests and the Levites were organized and um, provisions for the sacrifices and the offerings blah 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 so that ends the book of um, nehemiah so let see one more to go quite quite simple fairly short books and so we come to the last of our trilogy and the book of esther uh, now this is out of chronological order i'll show you where where this fits in all right and um you'll remember when we did the book of ezra do you remember I said that there was between chapter 6 and chapter 7 there was a gap of 60 years. Remember in the book of Ezra you had chapters 1 to 6 which gave the background and it was only in chapter 7 that Ezra actually comes on the scene. Well between chapter 6 and 7 I between the background and Ezra's actual appearance was 60 years. So there's a gap. All right. So remember mind the gap. All right. Now the book of Esther fits in in that gap. So what we're going to see now took place in that 60-year gap between Ezra chapter 6 and chapter 7. Now, let's, let's just recap, all right, basically on what we've seen. We've seen three returns to Israel, all right? Firstly, we saw return number one, where you had Zerubbabel and Joshua, all right? They were already going strong when Ezra came on the scene, all right? So you've got Zerubbabel and Joshua, and you remember they were working with um, Haggai and Zechariah, all right? So that was the first. That was the first return, the beginnings, and uh, that was that was all around 536 BC, and the temple was actually completed in 516 BC. Now later on, Ezra appears. Remember, Ezra appeared about 60 years later. All right, um, and he brought with him the second wave of exiles, and that was 457 BC, and then 15 years later, the third. Return happened, and Nehemiah comes on the scene in 444 BC. So what we've got is the first lot, Zerubbabel and Joshua, with Zechariah and Haggai, you know, first batch. Then a 60-year gap, then Ezra, boom, boom, doing his thing. Then 15 years later, you've got Nehemiah. Now, the story of Ezra is midway between the completion of the temple And Ezra's return to Jerusalem. So the temple has been completed through the ministry of Zerubbabel and Zechariah and Haggai and Joshua. All right, that's completed. And then 60 years later, Ezra comes on the scene. Well, what we're going to see now is 30 years after the temple has been completed and 30 years before Ezra comes on the scene with the second wave of um, exiles returning with him. So, but also, this doesn't happen in Jerusalem. Because for this story, we're doing a meanwhile back at the ranch. Because what we're going to see, the story of Esther takes place in Susa, which was where the king of Persia, the king at the time, was using as, you know, where he lived. So what we've got, remember, that Israel has come back into the land under the sovereign control of the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, at the particular place that the story of Esther happens... Alright, at this particular time, the king is called Xerxes, not Artaxerxes, that's different. A king called Xerxes or Ahasuerus, he had two names, don't let them bother you, alright. But he spent most of his time in Susa, which he made the capital of his reign over the Medo-Persian Empire. And so this story happened there. 30 years after the temple has been completed in Jerusalem, all right? So, basically, what we've got is back in the Medo-Persian Empire, whilst Israel is in the middle of re-establishing itself in the land, okay? So then, the main person to get hold of is the king of the Medo-Persian Empire at that time, a bloke called Xerxes, or Ahasuerus. He had two two names, but I'm going to refer to him as Xerxes. So, chapter one of the book of Esther. And while we're going through this book, bear in mind it is unique amongst the books in the Bible, because it is the only book that does not mention the Lord in any way at all. The word God is not even mentioned in the book. Now, that is strange to say the least, but as we're going through it, ask yourselves whether or not the Lord might not be mentioned in the book, but ask yourself whether it's clear that he's working in the book, because it really is quite remarkable. Okay, chapter one. Xerxes, the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, is married to a woman called Vashti. So his queen is called Queen Vashti. And uh, Xerxes holds a banquet, which kings often did in those days. And uh, during the banquet, he summons her, summons Vashti to his side. Now, what happens is, Vashti was busy and refused to go. Now, you didn't do that to your husband, let alone if your husband was the king. Now, what happened was, that as a result of these, Xerxes thought, oh well, my goodness, what an example she's being. If I let this go on, you know, there won't be a woman in the kingdom who respects her husband. And so what he did is he deposed her and divorced her and sought a replacement. All right. So basically, because Queen Vashti wouldn't submit to his authority, he said, right, okay, you're not going to be my queen anymore. And so, he's saying, right, okay, I need a replacement queen. Now, in Chapter 2, his uh, attendants and advisers suggest that the, the, the best answer to this would be for him to hold a nationwide beauty contest to find a replacement. So, they said, look, you need a replacement queen, have a beauty contest might will get the most beautiful woman in the Empire, mightn't you? And so that's, that's, that's what he decides to do. He says, right, good, you know, good idea, nice one. And so word goes out, you know, right, there's going to be a beauty contest. And of course, the idea being that all those who were going to enter into it would have a year of getting themselves ready before the actual contest. Now, there was a, a Jew living in Susa, obviously, who'd been taken there, in the captivity, or as a result of the captivity, uh, called Mordecai. And uh, he had a little cousin, Mordecai was his name, a Jew, and uh, he had a little cousin whom he'd brought up as if she was her own, his own daughter. And uh, her name was Hadassah, but she was also called Esther. And because she was so beautiful she was summoned to be in this contest so because the king's attendants knew her and how beautiful she was they said to her you must at least be a contender here and so they come to mordecai and they say we want esther to be in the contest and uh, so esther receives 12 months of beauty treatment and manicuring and stuff like that you know so obviously all the women were getting themselves to be absolutely the best and uh, the contest is is held and uh, Esther won hands down Xerxes recognized her as being the most beautiful woman in the kingdom and of course she was a jewess she was jewish but Mordecai advised her not to let on that she was a Jew just to keep that mum alright and uh, so now Esther a Jewish girl is now the queen married to the king of the Medo-Persian Empire that has control over the then known world as back in the land Israel is busy in process of re-establishing itself now What happens now is that Mordecai stumbles upon a a conspiracy to assassinate Xerxes. There are two guys, two conspirators, and Mordecai stumbles across it. And so what he does is through Esther, because remember Esther was his little cousin, although more like his daughter, she looked up to him as a father, that Mordecai alerts Xerxes through Esther. And as a result of that, the conspiracy is overcome and the two adjutants are executed. So, you know, this now puts... Xerxes now owes his life to Mordecai. Now, in Chapter 3, a chap called Haman comes on the scene. And he is promoted by, uh, uh, by Xerxes to very high office. So he becomes a very high official in the Empire. Now, in particular, Haman detested Mordecai. He hated him, had a real personal grudge against him. And the reason that this happened is because with Haman, because he was high up, and once he was promoted, even higher, everyone around him bowed and scraped. You know how it is in the world, you know, bow, scrape, scrape, you know, someone in high office. But Mordecai wouldn't. See, Mordecai was a believer. Mordecai didn't, I mean, he, he gave him honour and respect, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't bow and scrape around him or anything like that. And as a result of that, Haman develops this absolute hatred against Mordecai. And knowing that Mordecai was a Jew, Haman, his hatred then grows so much that he decides, I'm going to actually see if I can have the Jews destroyed, full stop. All right. So what he does is that he, he gets Xerxes' ear, you know, go, goes to see Xerxes and that, and works on him. And he, he paints the picture to Xerxes that the Jews are troublemakers. And that, you know, if Xerxes isn't careful, the Jews are going to take the kingdom over. It's how anti-Semitism always works, isn't it? And as a result of all this rubbish that Haman is whispering, whispering in Xerxes' ear, Xerxes gets absolutely paranoid about the Jews. And Haman gets him to write an edict that on a particular day, and the agreement was that Haman would cast lots to find out what day it was going to be, that on a particular day to be set by Haman casting lots, all the Jews in the Medo-Persian Empire would be put to death. So Xerxes, as a result of what Haman is whispering to him, Xerxes now has a date set on which every Jew in the then known world would be put to death. And of course this would include the Jews who were resettling Jerusalem. So can you see how Satan, we saw how Satan all the time was working in Jerusalem, but can you see how Satan is now working at the top? to try and destroy Israel in the very process of the Jews re-establishing themselves in the land. And look, it's very possible at this time that Zerubbabel and Haggai and Zechariah and that are still alive. And Joshua, still alive. You know, building the temple, blah, blah, blah. And now a plot is afoot and a day is looming when they're all going to be put to death. So in chapter 4... Obviously, Mordecai hears about this, and uh, he gets word to Esther to say, look, you know, you you got to do something, you know, obviously, is there any way you can help? And she, she tells him to get all the Jews he knew fasting, and, um, and says that she would fast too. And, um, and decides that the only course open to her is for her to actually approach Xerxes about this. Now, in the ancient world, a queen did not approach the king about anything, unless the king asked her to. You see what I mean? So a queen would only approach the king if she was summoned. And if a queen approached the king unsummoned, she ran the risk of being executed on the spot. It would purely depend whether he was glad to see her or not. So it was a real gamble. And so what she did is she decided that she would approach Xerxes straight up and, uh, you know, and, and, and to start to, to, to work on him to avert this disaster. And um, you know, so, so she was really putting her life on the line now. And in chapter five, she does it, she approaches Xerxes. She, she goes into the throne room straight up to him. And as she does it, he holds out the gold scepter and points it at her. And that was the sign that he received her visit. If he hadn't done that, an attendant would have killed her. All right? And he holds out the gold scepter. He accepts her visit. So, you know, saying, I'm, I'm pleased to see you. And he he then says to her, he says, ask what you will. He's so pleased to see her, he says, Tell me what you want. I'll give it to you. And what she does is she says, "Oh, could we have a banquet, please?" And he says, "Yes." And bang, they have a banquet there and then. Summon everyone, all right? And um, and she specifically says, "Oh, can Harmon be here?" You know, not nice man, Harmon. All right. So immediately the king calls a banquet and invites Harmon. And then, as this banquet starts, the king says, "Is there anything else you want?" Anything you like, what would you like? And so then she says, well, look, could we have another banquet with Harman tomorrow? So they're having one there and then, and there's Harman sitting there. And she says, oh, could we have another one tomorrow, please, with Harman? And he says, yeah, have another one tomorrow. No problem. So that banquet ends. There's going to be another one tomorrow, but that banquet ends. So... Harmon's on his way home that night from the banquet he knows that he's got you know that the other banquet is there the next day but he's on his way home from the banquet and he he, he gets he, he sees mordecai on his way home and he gets all riled up because he hates him so much and um you know of course he knows that this day is going to come when they're all going to be killed but he can't wait he just wants to get his hand on mordecai and uh, so he has a chat with his wife, so he go, and he so hates, he just, well, if he hates on, you've got to talk about him, haven't you? And he, he talks to his wife about it, and she suggests, well, look, why don't, why don't we see if we can get a gallows built, and then tomorrow we can hang Mordecai on it, all right? And so Harman thinks, oh, yeah, well, what a good idea. Chapter six. Um, that night, Xerxes couldn't sleep. So we've had the first banquet, there's going to be another banquet tomorrow. Harmon's gone home, had the idea with his wife about the gallows, all right, to um, you know, hang Mordecai on. And, 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 and that night, Xerxes can't, can't get to sleep, gets insomnia. So what he does is he calls in one of his officials, and um, he had the records of his reign read to him. Everything kings did, the whole history was recorded faithfully. And so he got, you know, one of his attendants in, he says, read, read me the story of my life, basically, is what it was, you know, a bit, bit egotistical, but was king of the then known world. <laughs> so, um, you know, he's, he's lying there, and, and, and the annals of, of his reign are being read to him. And, um, and, of course, it gets to the bit about the assassination attempt that Mordecai had thwarted. And um, and Xerxes realised, I haven't rewarded that guy yet. He saved my life. I owe him my life. I haven't rewarded him yet. Now, at that point, up pops Harmon, who also couldn't sleep. He's given up trying to get to sleep, because all he wants is the gallows to hang Mordecai on. So he turns up to Xerxes, not knowing that Xerxes has just decided, oh, I must reward Mordecai. Haman turns up um, to ask Xerxes about the gallows. Now, immediately, Xerxes, before, you know, before Haman has a chance to say why he's here, Xerxes says to him, and says, Look, Haman, how do you think someone who I want to honour should be really honoured? There's someone I want to go the whole hog with. I want to honour him up to the eyeballs. How do you suggest I do it? Now, the thing is, Harmon thought that Xerxes was talking about him. He thought this honor was going to be for him, not at all realizing that it was actually Mordecai. and so thinking it was himself. Harmon says, "Oh well, you've got to do this, and you got, and really gives it the works. You know, the ultimate honors: it processions and banquets and oh, you name it, high position, because he thinks this is what's going to come to him." but actually it was what Xerxes had planned for Mordecai. And um, and then Xerxes tells him that it was Mordecai he was thinking about. And of course, Harman has now, I mean, well, he's, he's, he's cut his throat, basically. And he thinks, oh, crumbs, what am I to do? But what Xerxes does is, is he says, look, Harmon, I want you to go and do all this for Mordecai now. You go and arrange all this honour for him. So, Hartley, gritting his teeth, you see. And he's got to go and arrange for Mordecai, who he's busy plotting to have murdered, gets the highest honours of the land. Well, he's in a bit of a fix, and he goes home, eventually that night, scared and depressed. Very fed up. Now, the next day, he has to go to the second of the banquets that Esther has requested. So now, we get chapter 7. So, the banquet is in full swing, alright? And um, everything is in plan for Mordecai to be honoured to the hill. Uh, There's the king, Esther, Harmon, all the court, loads and loads of important people. And Xerxes says to Esther, Tell me anything you want, and it's yours. What do you want? And Esther tells him about a plan that was afoot to destroy her people. She says, I'm a Jew. And she said, there's a plan afoot to destroy my people. Can you stop it? Can you put a stop to it? And Xerxes absolutely flips his lid and he says, you tell me who would dare try to destroy my queen's own people. He was livid that someone should be plotting against the people from whom the queen came, the Jews. And so she said, well, it's Harmon, and it's this decree that he's had you write out. I want you to put a stop to it, because that's my people, and that's Mordecai as well. <coughs> and Xerxes, hearing it was Harmon, he's so angry, I mean, he is going up the wall. He flies out into his garden. He is so beside himself, he gets up from the table, and he flies out into the garden, because he is so enraged that there's a plot to destroy the Jews, having discovered that she was a Jew, and that it was Harman, of all people, doing it. So he flies out into the garden. Now, at this point, Harman, Esther, would have been reclining on one of the, like, sofas they had, reclining. And at this point, Harmon, knowing he was dead, he flings himself at her at the couch, begging for mercy. So he's grovelling. She's lying on the couch, and he's there grovelling at her feet, begging for mercy. Now, just at that point, Xerxes comes back and thinks that on top of everything else, Harmon is molesting Esther, his wife. And, of course, if his lid wasn't flipped then, it is now. And he goes absolutely ape. And what he does is he has Harman hung up on the gallows that Harmon had had arranged to hang Mordecai up on. That's, that's poetic justice. And then in Chapter 8, Mordecai is brought before Xerxes, and uh, this decree is rescinded, all right, so it's dead and gone, all right, and, um, and Mordecai is um, appointed by Xerxes to write out his own decree. So Xerxes said a decree was written that was going to destroy you and your people, and he says that's all been taken care of now. You write your own decree. What do you want it to say? And as a result of that, Mordecai writes a decree that bequeaths the nation of Israel political and social and economic and religious autonomy. And that was how it was that eventually Israel fully ended up an independent nation back in the land. And then in chapter 9, on the day that Harman had planned for the Jews to be destroyed, Um, you know, it had been decided by the casting of lots. When that day actually came, what happens is with um, Xerxes' personal blessing, all the Israelites are given permission to kill any Gentiles who they knew to be planning to kill them. So the decree is reversed. And rather than Israel being wiped out, with the permission of the king of Medo-Persia, The Jews are able to execute any Gentiles who they knew to be plotting their destruction. And as a result of that, on that day, anti-Semitism was destroyed in a day. So, you can see how God was working, and you've probably heard of the festival of Purim that the, uh, the Jews celebrate to this day. It was an Old Testament festival that came into being at this time, and the Jews celebrate it to this day. And the festival of Purim celebrates this story and this day that happened. And it's called Purim from the Hebrew word Pur, which means lot, because you'll remember that Harmon designated the date by casting lots, and that is why They celebrate the festival of Purim, the ultimate example of what Satan does against God's people being thrown back at him. You know, the ultimate example outside of the the cross was the ultimate example. But what an example of the tables being turned on Satan. And then in chapter 10, the last chapter, the greatness of Mordecai is outlined because he became one of the most powerful people in the Medo-Persian Empire, obviously. And, uh, you know, you just have details of all the work that he did as one of the most important men in the then-known world. All he did for the welfare of the Jews across the Persian Empire, and and everything that was done to ensure that the re-establishment that was going on back in Jerusalem was successful. And so, the completion of Israel's restoration to the land couldn't have happened without Esther and Mordecai countering this plan of harmony. Satan was working in the capital, Susa, to destroy the Jews from there. Well, it was, it, it was what happened through Esther and Mordecai that that was um, put paid to. And uh, you remember in um, Ezra and Nehemiah that we, 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 we came across Artaxerxes, all right? Well, Artaxerxes, Esther has married King, King Xerxes, all right? Artaxerxes was her stepson. So, Artaxerxes, the king that Ezra and Nehemiah was the son of Xerxes and Queen Vashti, and because Esther became the queen, she was actually his stepmum. So, that's where Artaxerxes comes on the scene 30 uh, odd years later at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So, um, ev- even though the Lord is not mentioned once in the book of Esther, It's uh, perhaps one of the most blatant examples of him working in the whole Bible. So, with Ezra, Nehemiah and Esther, we've completed the chronology of Old Testament history. We've now come to the end of Old Testament history. And in coming to the end of it, we now have a date of around 430 BC. Now then, from this point, we move on to look at the wisdom books. And then after we've done that, we then move on to the third and last section in the Old Testament, and the Prophets. Remembering that the Prophets fit in at various times, uh, you you know, when we did the reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah, the Prophets either fit into that time scale in the land before the captivity, or as in Haggai, Zechariah, etc., etc., they fit into this time frame of Israel's history. But nevertheless, a landmark tonight because we've reached the end of uh, the actual chronological history of the Old Testament. So, with a date around 430 BC, uh, we and, and bearing in mind that, um, that 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 these books in the Jewish Old Testament come before One and Two Chronicles. And uh, 2 Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Old Testament, in in the Hebrew Bible. So in a sense, we've completed the history and uh, making tonight a bit of a landmark study. Next time we move on and look at the wisdom books, Job, Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and uh, Song of Solomon. So we move on to that section next time.